floor is it? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you, uh, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we began a short series of messages on the subject of church leadership. May not be the most exciting sermon series that you've ever heard. This may not be your cup of tea necessarily, but it is absolutely vital for the church to have good leadership, just like it is for any type of organization. Uh, bad leaders can kill anything. They can destroy anything and do it very quickly. We talked about the ten bad spies that came back and convinced a whole nation of people not to take the promised land. And they missed out on the blessings of God. There were two good leaders, Joshua and Caleb, that tried to make a difference. But the ten negative ones persuaded the people they couldn't take the land. Good leadership is absolutely vital. In less than a month, on the second Sunday of November, we will have our annual congregational meeting during the Sunday school hour. And in that meeting, part of what we do is we select people to positions of leadership here at New Hope Christian Church. Now, the church itself is called the body of Christ, as we saw last week. And the scripture teaches us that Jesus himself is the head of his body. Well, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Are you not the head of your body? Right? I mean, all of our bodies, I don't see any headless horsemen here this morning. All right. All of you have a head on your shoulders, and it is in that head that you have your brain and your thinking process. You are the head of your body, just as Jesus is the head of his body, which is the church. <coughs> But underneath that head, Jesus has delegated authority to people in positions of leadership. And what we're looking at specifically right now is the work of the eldership and of the deacons and the characteristics that these men are to have. That's what we search for in leadership. The elders are the ones, as we noted last week in 1 Timothy 5.17, that are to direct the affairs of the church. There are words in the Bible that the word elder, the word overseer, the word bishop, the word pastor, the word shepherd, they all refer to the work of the eldership. And they are charged with directing the affairs of the church, with providing the spiritual oversight of the church, protecting the flock from false doctrine, false teachers, searching for those who go wandering astray and are absent, that's what a good shepherd does. And so the eldership, and we're looking at the characteristics these men are to have, as well as the deacons. The deacons are a service-oriented ministry. The word deacon itself means servant or one who ministers uh, to, to others and on behalf of others. We, uh, Acts chapter 6 gives a great example of that where there were widows being neglected in the distribution of food. The apostle said, Choose seven men from among you, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we can appoint to this task. That's what they did. Those men took care of that task. They served. They, they, they provided for those widows. 
and that issue was taken care of. It's a service-oriented ministry. But in 1 Timothy 3, as well as in Titus chapter 1, we see the characteristics that these leaders are to have. And last Sunday, as we began here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we made it through verse 2, except for one of them. And uh, we're going to be picking up pretty much where we left off last week. So let me read the first couple verses and get us down to where we need to start today. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul, writing to this young evangelist, says, Here's a trustworthy saying, meaning you can count on this, bank on this. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, or elder, or shepherd, or pastor, all right, that group of people, all right, anyone sets his heart on that, he desires a noble task. We noted it is a task, it is a work, it is not just an office. It is not a position of power or prestige, this is a work a task that needs to be desired in one's heart. Now, the overseer or elder must be above reproach. We dealt with that. Above reproach does not mean sinless, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It does not mean perfect. It means blameless. Blameless. The word blameless, particularly in Titus's account, is a Greek word that means without a handle. There's nothing you can grab hold of to say, here's a charge against this man and a reason why he should not serve in this position. He's handleless. He doesn't have anything you can grab hold of to lay a charge against him. He's blameless. He is above reproach. The husband of but one wife we talked about, which literally means a one-woman man. And Paul, I believe, trying to keep sexually promiscuous men out of positions of leadership in the body of Christ. Temperate, self-controlled. Those two go hand in hand. A man that is in control of himself. A man that does not go overboard, all right? A man that, that, that can do things in moderation. He's temperate. He is self-controlled in control of his thinking processes, in control of himself. Respectable. We all know what respectable means, I think. Someone you can look at that has a well-ordered life, all right? There's some decorum about him. A man that is modest, he's respectable, hospitable, a phrase that literally means kind to strangers. Kind to strangers. When visitors visit this congregation and, 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 and they, they are, are noticed that, hey, don't know who that is, it ought to be the elders, the shepherds of the flock that ought to lead the way in making that person feel at home and welcoming someone that is, that's really not known. Kind to strangers is what that literally means. That catches us up, and now we're ready to take off to where we got to last week. The last characteristic here in verse 2 is able to teach. Able to teach. What does that mean? King James Version says, apt to teach. One preacher said, my elders are apt to teach anything, all right? That's not what that means in that way, all right? Apt to teach or able to teach. It's really a double-sided word in the Greek language. It means he must be teachable and have a teachable spirit, 
But secondly, it means he must be able to teach, able to communicate God's truths to others. In other words, if you're going to be a leader in God's church, you can't just have a teachable spirit, although that's wonderful. We should all have that. We should always want to learn more. But we have to be able to pass that on to other people, especially a leader. A leader, an elder in the church, can't just say, well, call the preacher on that one, all right? Or, you, or go see these people. They can help you with that. No, an elder needs to be able to communicate the truth of the Word of God to someone. And at the very least, the very minimum, if someone were to come up to an elder and say, I've decided to become a Christian, how do I do that? Of all people in the church, an elder better be able to lead someone to faith in Christ and to share what God says. Here's how you come to Jesus. Here's how you become a Christian. Here's how you can come into an eternal life standing. Elders must be able to do that at least, to teach someone the truth of how to be saved from sin. So, they are not only teachable when it comes to sound doctrine, but they are able to articulate and teach sound doctrine to others. They must be able to teach. Now verse 3. And let me, let me pause just for a second. Because if you weren't here last week, there's something that I need to reinforce that the people last week heard. You cannot sit there this morning and say, well, I'm never going to be an elder in the church. I don't ever plan on being a leader, so these things really don't apply to me. Yes, they do. Every characteristic that we look at that is applied to the elders and the deacons is applied to every Christian someplace else in the scriptures. Everybody's supposed to be this way. So don't sit there this morning and say, this doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. Every one of them. You women may say, but I can't be the husband of one wife. <laughs> no, but you can be faithful to your mate. Make the application, all right? These are to apply to everybody. So I needed to put that in before we go any further. All right, verse 3, not given to drunkenness. Your Bible could say not given to much wine. Regardless of how it reads, this absolutely prohibits drunkenness, right? Yeah, okay. A, a man that is a drunk cannot serve as a leader in the Lord's church. Now, it does not say that that leader can't take one drink. But I would take you back to that characteristic that says above reproach and being blameless. And I would submit to you this morning that that's a pretty strong statement that he shouldn't touch it. All right? I think it would drastically affect my testimony if I had a beer before I came in here to preach on Sunday morning. And if you knew that, right? I, th I think that would drastically affect my testimony. Now, I can't even stand the smell of the stuff that I've smelled on other people, all right? So you don't have to worry about that. I'm sure it would make me sick. But, uh, I, I'm, and it's not that I'm so much concerned about what you people think about, about that issue. I care what God thinks about it. And that's why I don't do it. And when you get to the place that you can stop thinking about what others think about something, and you begin to start thinking what God thinks about something, 
That's when all that garbage in your life begins to take care of itself. So he cannot be given to drunkenness. Not given to wine, all right? And, uh, boy, I think that one is self-explanatory. Then he goes on and says, not violent, but gentle. A leader cannot have a quick and explosive temper. Can't have that. They have to have a long, long, long fuse. A long fuse. You cannot be on edge just ready to blow apart. By the way, fellows, a hot temper is not manly. It's infantile. All right? You cannot have a hot temper or be violent. You must be gentle. And you can sit there and say, well, this is church work and you're dealing with Christians. Why would he ever have to have a hot temper? Sometimes sad to say, some of the most wicked, vicious, ugly things you'll ever see in your life, you'll see among people that call themselves Christians. That's sad, but that's true. And that's why a leader cannot have an explosive temper. He's going to have to deal with some difficult issues in the life of the church, some difficult things, because he's dealing with people. All right? Yeah, how would you like to be responsible for you? <laughs> You'll chew on that one for a while, okay? All right. But no, elders have to deal with difficult things, and sometimes they have to sit there in the midst of incredible adversity and sometimes sit there while all kinds of abuse is being heaped upon them. And they have to be able to respond, as Proverbs says, with a gentle answer that turns away wrath. That's not easy. But an elder, a leader in the church, must not be violent, but gentle. He cannot respond with an explosive answer that has no place in church leadership. And this next one then goes hand in hand with that. Not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. Those, these two just really go together, don't they? Not violent, but gentle. In other words, not having a short fuse, don't have a quick and explosive temper, and then not quarrelsome, which says you don't go looking for a fight. There are some people that go looking for fights. There are some people that just, they, 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 they love to argue. They like a good argument. I don't particularly care to be around people that are always looking to argue, do you? I mean, my goodness, and one of the things that I hear that type of person say, and I've heard it, I don't know how many times through, through my life, they'll say, well, I was just playing the devil's advocate. Excuse me? Who's advocate? I mean, stop and think about that a minute. Do you get that? I mean, I don't want to advocate anything for the devil, do you? But not quarrelsome. Paul told that to Timothy. He said, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Fighting and quarreling accomplishes nothing. Now, does that mean that you can't differ in your, your opinion on something and discuss it? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Of course you can do that. But not quarrelsome, not argumentative. Then it says, not a lover of money. 
not a materialist. The leader must be characterized by giving, not receiving. And if God blesses you in a phenomenal way, when it comes to financial means, you ought to be a blessing to others in a phenomenal way, especially those of the household of faith. But you cannot be a lover of money. And what happens, and I've seen this happen in the church before, not here, but I've seen it happen in other places. When you're a lover of money, a church leader will go into a church meeting and they begin thinking, we need to save that money. We need to save that money. We need to save all this money. Folks, the church is not in the savings and loan business. It's not. And that's hard to get across to some people. And it's not wrong to have a little bit of a cushion, all right, because there are some lean times, up times and down times, when it comes to finances in, in, in the life of a church. Lately, just to be honest, we've been going through a little bit more of a lean time. Our offerings have been down. Our attendance has been down. You know, it's just been a weird year, year and a half or so with, with the pandemic and everything. And so it's just, it's been strange in that respect. It's not easy right now to be a church treasurer. Just ask Pam. She's sitting up there, right? Okay. But we're not in the savings and loan business, and so we're not going to accumulate hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're going to use it for ministry. We're going to use it for the kingdom of God. We're going to use it to reach people for Jesus Christ. you got to do that. But if you get a lover of money, what he'll do is he'll look at the bottom line on everything, and he won't care about the ministry that's taking place or the lives that have been changed or the way that you minister to help some hurting, needy person. A leader cannot be a lover of money. Then it says that he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. So how good of a leader is he at home? That's a good question that needs to be asked and answered. If he can't handle his home, how is he ever going to handle the Lord's church? And that's what verse 5 says, right? If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Well, what's the answer to that question? He can't. He can't. So folks, if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And he's not saying your family has to be perfect. He's saying a leader needs to be able to manage his family well. And if he can't handle his home... There's no way he'll be able to handle the church. By the way, when it comes to handling the home, that doesn't refer to only the kids. That can refer to the wife as well. All right? That he needs to have that godly example when it comes to, to his marriage. So you, you have to be careful. You have to be careful when you select a leader. He has to be a man who biblically and lovingly and righteously uh, uh, loves his wife and manages his family. In fact, your family is your first church. You know that? Your family is your first church. Now, you may not have elders and deacons and set up at home. Okay, I doubt if you do. But it's really your first church, and that should be where you practice all these principles of faith. It needs to be able to work at home. All right? Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. You would think that would be an easy one for people to understand, but sometimes people get confused even on that. 
what happens sometimes is people want to select spiritual leaders that, that are the most active, enthusiastic, outgoing people in the church, regardless of their level of spiritual maturity. Well, listen, folks, when it comes to church leadership, it's not spiritual energy we need as much as spiritual maturity that we need. And sometimes the spiritually mature ones don't always have the energy that new believers do. But you can't have a recent convert. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge and wisdom and some maturity, okay? Recent converts don't know. They don't have a clue what may come upon them if they're put into a position of church leadership. They haven't thought through things. You need spiritually mature people in those positions. Deacons as well. Remember what it says in Acts 6? Choose from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we can appoint to that task. And sometimes the spiritual maturity can take years. And I'm not saying how many years it takes because I think for all people it's different. Some people grow very quickly because they put themselves in a position to grow quickly. They'll find someone that can help them and mentor them, and they involve themselves in things that will help them to mature spiritually, and some people don't do that. But not a recent convert. At the end of verse 6 it says, He may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What was it that caused Satan to fall? Pride. Pride. Read Ezekiel chapter 28. Pride brought Satan down. And pride and conceit can do the same thing to a recent convert if they're put into a position of church leadership too quickly. Making a person an elder or a deacon has ruined some people in the church. Absolutely ruined them. Sometimes because of pride and sometimes because of the nature of the issues they have to deal with. It just overwhelms them. And saps the life right out of them. All right, next one. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In verse 7. A good reputation with outsiders. Not just the people in the church. But a reputation, a good reputation with the people of the community, with those outside the church. You see, you can't be a godless hypocrite out in the world and be a saint inside the church. And the church may think, well, this is the godliest guy I know of. And sometimes the people in the church are the very last to know what a person's really like in the community. They don't really know what's going on out in the world. But you don't ever want to put a a person in a position of leadership in the church and then find out later that you made a terrible mistake because of the way he lives out out in the world, out in the community. And believe me, the community will know. They'll know. So what's this all talking about here? Does this mean that everybody has to like him and he has to be among who's who in in the city and community? Well, no. In fact, sometimes you're known as much by who your enemies are than by who your friends are. Right? Sometimes. And sometimes if the right people are against you, it's a compliment. 
So what it's talking about here is that he lives a life, a well-ordered life outside the church, so that he doesn't just sing and speak a certain way inside the church, but outside he's totally different. There is a consistency there. If you're trying to reach a community, and you have leaders out there cheating the community, or ripping off the community, or being rude in the community, that's going to affect the testimony of the church. And so he must have a good, consistent reputation, not only inside the church, but outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. All right? Flip over to Titus chapter 1, right quick. Just a few pages over, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 1. Because we want to see the list here that Paul gives to Titus, which is going to be very similar to what we've seen in Timothy. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read these three or four verses, and then we'll make some, some comments on them. Titus 1, verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, several qualifications or characteristics there. It says, first of all, he must be blameless. We've already covered that one in 1 Timothy 3, as well as the husband of but one wife. Then he says, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So again, this is if he has children, they must be believers. Doesn't say that he has to have children, all right? As I said last week, if you believe that a leader has to have children, you just made it so that Jesus Christ himself couldn't be a leader in his own church. So don't stumble over that. It's not saying that a single man can't be a leader in God's church. But if he has children, they need to be believers and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Which brings up another thing. At what point do these kids cease being the responsibility of their parents? And a lot of people struggle with that. And, and I would say, I don't really have a verse of scripture to support this, but I would say as long as those kids are under your roof, you're responsible for them. That just seems like common sense to me. So you may sit there and say, good, we'll kick them out tonight. Well, no. How old are your kids? Age six? Eight, no, or not. A little early. No. But again, this goes back to he needs to be able to manage his family. Now, once the kids are gone, there still people may remember, well, man, when his kids were at home, he, he, he couldn't handle it. He, he did not manage his household well, so he's still probably not going to be a good... I mean... People will notice those things. So a man 
whose children believe aren't open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, a man that can manage his family well, as, as, Timothy, as Paul wrote to Timothy. You get the idea there. In verse 7 he says, Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work. Boy, doesn't that tell you how serious this is. Entrusted with God's work. He must be a faithful steward for God. He's been entrusted with the work of God. And that's a faithful charge. That is a, a tremendous responsibility. He must be blameless in verse 7, it says. Not overbearing. What does overbearing mean? Well, it means to be dominantly arrogant. Dominantly arrogant is what it means. Don't start trying to control people. God doesn't need controlling leaders in the church. Verse 7 goes on and says, Not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. We've already seen and discussed those. Verse 8, he must be hospitable. We've seen that one. Then he says, one who loves what is good. I like that one. One who loves what is good. Paul said in Romans, to hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And folks, we're living in a world that reverses that all the time. Right? Wow. Where people call night day, they call bad good, they call good bad. No, the elder must be one who loves what is good, what God says is good. Self-controlled in verse 8, we've seen before. Then he says upright. Upright, that's a great word. Are you an upright Christian this morning? Are you an upright husband, an upright wife, an upright church member? I don't think I need to explain that to you, but... It's pretty self-explanatory. Literally, it means morally honorable. Morally honorable. So you need to know what morals the Word of God teaches because our world certainly isn't living according to the morals that God sets out. But you've got a pattern in your life of making the right choices that honors God and obeys His Word. You are morally honorable. That's what upright means. Holy in verse 8, a word that means separated. You are separated unto God for a holy purpose. You're, you're disciplined, you're self-controlled, you're being holy unto God. God says, be holy because I am holy. Yeah. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Again, meaning the word of God. It's Easy for some people to just kind of bend it a little bit these days because there are thousands of people that do that and say, well, that's not all that important. We don't need to stand up for that. If it's in the Word of God, you do. You take your stand on the book of what God's Word teaches, and you stand firm upon that. You don't let anyone take your convictions away from you, regardless of who caves in. You stand upon the Word of God and what it teaches and what you believe about that. you got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message. And in verse 9, be able to encourage others by sound doctrine. Again, apt to teach, we noticed in Timothy. So don't cop out here and opt for doctrine that sounds good instead of sound doctrine. Because doctrine that sounds good never helped anybody. 
watered down penicillin never cured a soul. So don't go with doctrine that sounds good. Go for sound doctrine. And there can be a big difference because sound doctrine is really good. And not only should you be able to encourage others by sound doctrine, but you must be able to refute those who oppose sound doctrine, it tells us here. So leaders, can you do that? Can you refute those who oppose sound doctrine? By the way, church members, can you do that? Everybody needs to be able to do this, right? Can you refute people who oppose sound doctrine? Can you handle the cults when they come knocking at your door? When the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door or the, or the Mormons, all right? Can you refute their teachings with sound doctrine? A believer needs to be able to do that. To take sound doctrine and refute those that oppose it. Now why is that so important? Well the book of Proverbs says that there are times when you don't answer a fool according to his folly. And there are times when you do answer a fool according to his folly. And I think when you answer a fool according to his folly, it's when he's foolish in regards to the things of God. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, that you're to be ready to give a defense of your faith. There are times when you need to be able to stand up for what you believe and be able to articulate that to others and teach others. In fact, it may be the only chance that those who oppose sound doctrine, it may be their only chance to get to actually hear the truth. And if they don't hear it from you, then who are they going to hear it from? And leaders need to be able to refute those who oppose the truth. And I'm convinced, convinced that the reason why more people don't defend their faith is because they don't know how. And you need to know how to, do, to defend your faith, which was one of the primary reasons that we selected the Sunday school literature that we have right now. And I know that it's taken quite a while through the introductory 10 lessons and now in Genesis, and we're talking today uh, the lesson is about the Ice Age, which the Ice Age isn't even mentioned in the Bible. But, but how does that fit in? And how does that connect with the flood of Noah? And people who, who think the flood of Noah is just a story. No, it's not just a story. These things actually happen. This is history. And you need to know this kind of history so that you can build a groundwork so that you can refute those who oppose the Scripture and oppose sound doctrine. This is good material that you need to chew on and work on. And leaders need to be able to refute those who oppose the truth. If you don't know how to defend your faith, you can't be a leader in the Lord's church because leaders need to know that. To have a good grasp of the Word of God so you can teach others sound doctrine. And when the opportunity comes for you to refute those who oppose it, you can give them the truth and you can do that in love. So how important is it that we have good leadership? Wow, two, two messages and you can't answer that one yet. Very important, absolutely. Very important. And how do you find people like that? Well, you find people like that when those people have found the Lord and they determine they want to be that kind of person and they're willing to pay whatever price it is. You find people like that because everybody in the church ought to be like that. 
everybody's to be this way. And I wouldn't tell you this morning to start being a godly man so that you can be a leader. I would tell you to be a godly man because the Bible says you ought to be a godly man. The Bible says you ought to be a godly woman. Don't do it just to be a leader in the church. Because when your motives are right and your heart is pure and you're trying to be everything God wants you to be, that's when somebody else is going to come up and tap you on the shoulder and say, you ought to consider being a leader in the church. And you won't have to advertise for anybody. That's just the way it works. And everybody needs to be like this. So next month, we'll have our annual congregational meeting. And we'll be electing people for positions of leadership in the Lord's church. And so I hope that these things that we've looked at will be helpful for you. Jesus was the greatest leader the church has ever known. And he is the head of his church. Jesus is also the greatest servant the world has ever known. And I think because he's the greatest servant, it makes him the greatest leaders. Great leaders are great servants. I don't know what decisions you may want to make today based on what we've looked at. But if you have decisions that you'd like to make public, you can meet me down front as we stand and as we sing.